Welcome to episode 315 of Live Happy Now. When the pandemic struck last year, many people wondered how it was possible to be happy with all the stress and tragedy going on around us. But today's guest took the time to show us how. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week we're talking with New York Times bestselling author Tal Ben-Shahar, whose new book, Happier No Matter What, looks at how we can cultivate hope, resilience, and purpose even during the most difficult times of our lives. Let's hear what he has to say. Tal, thank you so much for coming back on Live Happy Now. Thank you, Paula. It's great to be back. Well, we had a wonderful reason to have you back because you've got a new book out and it's called Happier No Matter What. One thing that I really like about this book is that right up front, you talk about COVID and quarantines and how that affected us. So why was it important for you to write a book that specifically spoke to this time in our lives? What happened as soon as COVID hit and you know, social unrest and uh, you know it seemed like our world was, or we were losing control over our world, many people approached me and said, you know, what is the relevance of the science of happiness now? Isn't it a bit redundant? You know, one of my friends went as far as suggesting that we quarantine happiness <laughs> for a while. And in response to that, I wrote the book. And, and the basic argument is that not only is the science of happiness still important, it's actually more important than ever. Yeah. And so many people are thinking about survival, whether that's like their physical health or their mental health. And you point out that happiness and those things are not mutually exclusive, like that happiness plays a big role in that. Yeah, very much so. You know, what helped me uh, articulate initially for myself and then for my students, the importance of the science, the, the relevance of it is actually a concept that was coined by Nassim Taleb. And Nassim Taleb is a professor at New York University. And he writes about the concept of anti-fragility. Anti-fragility, in other words, the opposite of uh, fragility. And what he does is essentially take resilience to the next level. So resilience 2.0, if, if you wish. Specifically, you know, resilience is about the ability to bounce back. It's going back to where we were before, to our original state. Anti-fragility or resilience 2.0 is bouncing back higher. Not going back to where we were before, but going to a place that is higher, better, stronger than it was before. This is what Resilience 2.0 is about. And I read that and I found that really interesting because I've talked to a lot of people who who don't feel like they're going to even get back to the point of happiness that they were at before 2020 happened. You know, they don't feel like that's even a possibility. Their worlds have been irreparably changed. So I was really fascinated by that concept of anti-fragility. And you also talk about how it is more likely that people have post-traumatic growth than post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. So, so yes. Yeah, so, so understanding what uh, anti-fragility is, is about is, is important. And maybe I can explain it through two examples, one physical, the other one psychological. The physical one is about our muscles. We go to the gym and we put stress on our muscles. We lift weights. And as a result of lifting weights, uh, we actually grow stronger, at least potentially we grow stronger, healthier, bigger. So our muscles are an example of an anti-fragile system. You put pressure on it, it grows stronger, bigger. And an example that, that you gave in the psychological realm is post-traumatic growth. Yes, you know we can experience post-traumatic stress disorder, which is about breaking down 
after the stress. And we can also experience post-traumatic growth, which is growing stronger as a result of the trauma. So in a sense, you know, we're at a crossroad when we experience hardship, difficulties, even traumas. We're at a crossroad because one way that we can take is to break down, experience fragility. The other is to grow stronger, which is anti-fragility. And the science of happiness, the role of the science of happiness, as I see it, certainly in difficult times, is to provide us with the tools, with the techniques, with the know-how of how we can take the situation and make the most of it, make the best of it and mm-hmm. grow from it. Yeah. And one thing that you point out is that your book is titled Happier No Matter What, not Happy No Matter What. And this is a subtle difference, but you explain it very well. Can you talk about that? One of the most common questions that I've been asked over the past 30 years or so since, since I became involved in this field is, uh, so Tal, are you happy? And many people ask it because they also know my history, which is I got into this field of uh, happiness studies because of my own unhappiness. So their question essentially is, so 30 years hence, are you finally happy? And uh, my answer to that is that I don't know how to answer this question. Why? Because happiness is not a, a binary zero, one, either or state. In other words, there isn't a point before which one is unhappy after which one is happy. What happiness is, is a continuum. And I can certainly say that today I'm happier than I was 30 years ago. At the same time, I hope that I'll be happier than I am today, you know, five years from now. So getting to that point of being happy or happiness, that point doesn't exist. We can, at the same time, be happier. So even during difficult times, such as the ones we're going through now, maybe we can't experience happiness or being happy, but we can certainly become happier. I love that you bring that out because it's really important that people don't feel they have to be happy right now. You know, I've, again, had that conversation with people where it's like, how am I supposed to be happy right now with what I've lost, what I'm going through? And no one's saying Everyone needs to like look at the sunshine and rainbows. It's just how do you make yourself more content? How are you happier during this uncomfortable time? That's right. It's always about making things a little bit better, growing as a result of it, learning to better deal with the situation, putting the pressure on ourselves to to be happy at all times is unnecessary and also unhelpful. Yeah, because you even talk about the paradox of happiness and that pursuing it too robustly can actually make someone feel less happy. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Paula, because you know, this is such an important idea with, within our field. You see, uh, there's uh, research on the one hand showing that happiness is really good for us, telling us that you, know, you increase levels of happiness and your relationships will improve. You'll actually live longer. You'll become more creative, more innovative, more successful you know, in every area in your life. It's a good thing to be happier beyond the fact that it feels good to feel good. In other words, that we want to be happy as an end in itself. So on the one hand, we're told happiness is great. On the other hand, there is research by Iris Moss and others showing that people who get up in the morning and say to themselves something to the effect of happiness is really important for me, or I, I, I want to be happy, or I'm pursuing happiness. These people who value happiness actually become less happy. In fact, they're more likely to experience 
loneliness and, and sadness. So we have a problem because on the one hand, we know that happiness is, is good for us. But on the other hand, we also know that if we pursue it or if we value it, we are hurt by, by that. So, so what do we do? Well, what we do and the resolution to this paradox is that we pursue happiness indirectly. Let me use an analogy to explain this. So let's think about sunlight. So if the sun shines in the sky and I look up at the sun, I'm going to hurt myself. You know, my eyes are going to, to burn. Uh, I'm going to start crying. Not a good thing. On the other hand, what I can do is take that ray of sunlight and break it down using a prism, for example. And then I can look indirectly at the sun. In other words, look at the colors of the rainbow, enjoy them and savor them. In the same way with happiness. Pursuing it directly will hurt me. But what if I break it down? What if I break it down into its elements, into its metaphorical colors of the rainbow? Then I can pursue these elements and then what I'm doing is pursuing these elements directly, but pursuing happiness indirectly. For example, one of those elements is uh, meaning. If I wake up in the morning and say to myself, okay, I'm, go I'm going to find more meaningful things to do today, or uh, physical well-being, which is also part of happiness. And I say, I'm going to exercise today. That's an indirect way of pursuing happiness. Or if I cultivate my relationships and I wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to invest more in my loved ones. I'm going to be kinder, more generous, which is also an indirect way of pursuing happiness. These are all ways that, we, that help us circumvent the paradox of happiness. So we're not looking at sunlight directly, metaphorically speaking. We're not pursuing happiness directly. Rather, we are looking at the colors of the rainbow that have been broken down by the prism. We're looking or we're pursuing the elements of happiness that lead us to a happier place. That's so well put. And, you know, as people listen, it's like, well, that sounds great, but how do I do it? And you have something called Spire that really walks us through every area to help build that happiness in these different areas of our lives. So can you talk about, first of all, tell us what Spire stands for, and then can we kind of talk through an example of each one? Sure. So, you know, there, there are many definitions to happiness, and there isn't one right definition. However, what is right, what we know is that it's important for us to define happiness for ourselves. So my definition and the definition that is a synthesis of what many scholars, thinker, thinkers, and practitioners have come to is that happiness comprises five elements. The five elements of happiness, and they make up the acronym SPIRE, are spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational well-being, that's the R of SPIRE, and finally, emotional well-being. And it's these five elements together that, once again, are the equivalent to the colors of the rainbow that make up the white light. So these five elements make up happiness. Now, what are some examples for each one of these elements? So spiritual well-being. You know, spirituality, we can, of course, find it in religion, and many people do. At the same time, we can also find spirituality elsewhere, for example, in a sense of meaning and purpose. Whether it's a sense of meaning and purpose in our work or in raising a family or in volunteering or wherever it is, a sense of meaning and purpose contributes to our spiritual well-being. Another way of um, cultivating spiritual well-being is through mindfulness, being present, 
You know, Henry Miller said that if we're really present, even to a blade of grass, we experience the, the spiritual, the miraculous in it. So presence, mindfulness, being absorbed is a form of spirituality in our day-to-day. Then there is physical well-being. Physical well-being is about nutrition. It's about exercise. It's about rest and recovery. It's about touch. Just as an example with physical exercise, there is so much research showing that exercising regularly has the same effect on our psychological well-being. I'm not even talking just about physical well-being. On our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. That's working amazing. in the same way, you know, releasing norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in our brain. And that's, of course, part of happiness through spiritual well-being. Or nutrition, there's a lot of research showing that what we eat, in other words, the quality of the food and how much we eat, in other words, the quantity of the food affects our mood. And again, that's no, no big surprise. We know how we feel after a good meal versus a, a not so good meal or the importance of rest and recovery for happiness. That's part of physical well-being, of course, whether it's sleep, whether it's taking time off, vacation, and so on. Uh, then there is intellectual well-being. You know, Paula, one of the studies that I, I love most that came out quite recently is showing that curiosity is associated with longevity. In other words, people who ask many questions, who are lifelong learners, who have a question mark rather than a period at the end of most sentences, they actually live longer. They actually uh, enjoy higher levels of happiness as well as physical health. So that's uh, intellectual well-being, uh, deeply engaging, whether it's with a text, whether it's with a work of art, whether it's with nature. That's a way of cultivating intellectual well-being that contributes to happiness. Then there is relational well-being. And you know, that, that that's an easy one. The number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Relational well-being is it's also about the relationship we cultivate with ourselves, no less important than the relationship we cultivate with others. And then there is emotional well-being. And emotional well-being has to do with how we deal with painful emotions. Do we reject or do we embrace painful emotions? Because when we reject painful emotions, they intensify. When we welcome painful emotions, uh, invite them in as guests, uh, they do not overstay their welcome. And then there is also how do we cultivate pleasurable emotions, whether it's gratitude, whether it's love, whether it's joy, and whether it's excitement or, or interest. These are all important emotions to cultivate that form a part, not the whole, but a part of a happy life. In your book, you explain each one very well. And I wondered, is one element more important than the other? Or is like maybe to one person, one of those elements would be more important? Or how, yeah. how does that work? Oh, good. Paul, I'm so glad you asked this. And, and with your permission, let, let, let me take a step back when I answer this and, and, and give a more general and then more specific response. You know, when we talk about happiness, we're essentially talking about three levels of analysis, three levels of intervention, three levels of impact. The first level is the universal. And the universal level is what's common to every person on earth, whether you're in Kenya or the US or, or China or Australia. So this is the universal. A human being is a human being is a human being. For example, part of the universal truths is that we all need all five elements of happiness, you know, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. They are uh, 
embedded or their need is embedded in our nature. Another element here that we know that is universal is that relationships are the number one predictor of happiness globally. So that's the universal, and it's important to understand, and this is what research is all about. Then there is also research about the second level of analysis or, or, or intervention, and, and that is the cultural. There are cultural differences. And look, for example, at a sense of uh, meaning and purpose. You know, that, that would be culturally different in different places. You know, in certain places, it's more about the individual accomplishments and focus. In other places, it's more about the collective. And that's how you gain your, your meaning and purpose in life, your spiritual well-being. There are places that are more religious than others. And that, of course, impacts, cultural impacts on spirituality. And then in terms of relationships, you know, relationships look very different in Kenya than they do in the U.S., than they do in China in terms of our relationship with adults, with, within romantic relationships, within, uh, within the workplace. It looks very different in those different places, and we need to adhere to that. And finally, there are the individual differences. And this is where I get to your question directly. You know, so relationships universally are the number one predictor of happiness. At the same time, we're all different. For some people, different elements of the spire are more important than others. So all of them matter, but some matter more, and that depends on the individual. So we have the three levels. We have the universal, we have the cultural, and we have the personal. And we have to understand the three levels if we, un we are to understand how the spire elements can best play out in our lives. For the universal and the cultural, approach to happiness, we need research. For the personal, for the individual understanding of happiness, we need me-search. Both research and me-search are important. Yeah, I love the phrase me-search. I thought when I was reading that, I thought that was really fantastic. And, you know, as someone is doing their me-search and seeing how their life is and looking at the five elements of Spire, what if they realize they have, say, four out of the five? I mean, do you have mm. to have all five to become happier? Or again, is that a personal thing? Yeah. So we probably can't fulfill our potential for happiness, our potential for happiness, which is, of course, very different from other people's, without adhering to all five. However, that does not mean that we need to excel in all five. It, 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 it doesn't mean that we need to uh, spend hours and, and days cultivating each one of the five. We need to identify those areas that matter to us most while not neglecting things that are also maybe not most important, but are also important for our happiness. So the five elements of Spire are interconnected. And while we don't want to neglect, totally neglect, any of them because they are interconnected. And for example, if I completely neglect my body or completely neglect my relationships, even if I do focus on every one of the other spire elements, it will be very difficult to experience happiness. At the same time, if I primarily focus on one of the elements, that will affect all others. This is such great information. And this book makes it so accessible and easy to walk through this. And you also have something coming up. It's actually launching today, which is your new Happiness Studies Academy. So before we let you go, can you tell us what that's about and what people can expect from it? Sure. Thank you for asking this. So I'm the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, where we offer certificate programs in happiness studies. And the purpose of these certificate programs, and they're a year-long 
program is a double purpose. The first is to help you, the participant, the student, become happier. The second purpose is to help you do the same for others. Whether as a parent, whether it's as a manager, whether as a teacher or a coach or a therapist or a, or a medical doctor, it's about helping yourself and then helping others become happier. And the benefit thereof is, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, it feels good to feel good. Happiness is an end in itself. And second, because we know that happiness is also a means to flourishing in just about every area of life through increasing levels of creativity and innovation, productivity, physical health, relationships, and so on. That's excellent. Yeah, what a great way to spend some time, spend a year getting happier, learning how to improve the world around you. That is so fantastic. What a gift you're giving us. Thank you, Paula. And you know, and um, you know, I, I mentioned that, it, that, that it was a year-long journey. Actually, in many ways, it's a lifelong journey because once students join the Happiness Studies Academy, they're members for life, you know, for, for as long as they'll have us in a sense. <laughs> so after that year, they continue, you know, to have access, of course, to all the material. And we continue to meet uh, on retreats and online weekly. So it's really a community of like-minded, like-hearted individuals that come together for the purpose of spreading happiness. That's excellent. What a great mission. I'm excited to see how that how that evolves. So, so Tal, thank you for sitting down, talking with me today. This book is remarkable and, again, perfectly timed, well-written to what we're going through right now. And, and so thank you again. Thank you, Paula. Thank you very much. That was Tal Ben-Shahar, author of the new book, Happier No Matter What. If you'd like to learn more about Tal, follow him on social media, download a free chapter of his book, or learn how to join his Happiness Studies project, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. Mm-hmm.